Let's cultivate our motivation. Let's be aware of how often in our lives we get stuck on certain things. Yeah. We get an idea and we are just stuck on that idea. Or we want an answer to something and we get stuck. You know, we can't go on unless we have an answer to that question. And so we often wind up uh, putting our energy into things where maybe it's not so productive. Because getting stuck on some point, on some thought, can really consume a lot of energy, especially if it's a negative thought. So it's very helpful to maybe not take all of our thoughts so seriously. It's just a thought, it's a little blip of energy. It comes and it goes. Like that flash of lightning, we can't find the beginning of the thought, where it was before it arose. And we can't find where the thought goes after it ceases. So our thoughts can be important, but they're not worth getting stuck on. They're just blips of energy, and especially the negative thoughts or the thoughts where we ruminate go round and around and around. Really trying to find the beginning of that thought, where it was before you thought it, and where it went after you finished thinking it. That can be very, very helpful to understand the nature of what a thought is and to get us unstuck. So all of this is part of learning to be flexible. And we encounter that inter we encounter that challenge of being flexible many, many times in a day in our life. And what is it that makes us inflexible? This is something to examine on your own. What makes your mind inflexible? What makes it get stuck on some thought or some image? In any case, imagine putting all those things we get stuck on down 
not feeding them. And instead, letting our heart be open and clear so that understanding for others can arise, compassion can arise, and wisdom can arise. So we may may we familiarize our mind with these virtuous qualities, knowing that familiarization is different than getting stuck on something. And through this, may we develop our good qualities, purify the interferences and attain full awakening to be able to benefit others in the greatest way. So, do you ever get stuck? Yeah. What's the difference between getting stuck on something and familiarizing yourself with a good quality? What's similar about those two things and what's different about them? (laughs) (laughs) Which which one's which? Is the right. It takes efforts to familiarize with something virtuous, and getting stuck is very easy. It's just a natural. Is a it feels like an energy that just keeps spinning. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think we get stuck like that? You say that whenever I ask a question. <laughs> That's your answer for most of the questions I ask. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We do it for a long time. We're just habituated. We don't think. We run on automatic. And then we get stuck on some... It can be anything, you know? We can get stuck on an emotion. We could get stuck on, we have to know why somebody did something. And last week, it seemed to me that we got stuck on, we had to know exactly when death occurred. (laughs) Remember our long discussion last week about when is death? Okay. Because in Tantra, they say the clear light of death. And that clear light of death is when the consciousness is in the body. So is it really the clear light of death because you're still alive at that point? Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but yeah, there's no going back. But 
it's interesting. What do we define as what makes something death? Yeah, because it seems like in different situations, death can mean different things. Yeah, so it could be in Tantra, it means one thing. Yeah, and in, in Sutra or philosophy, it means something else. Because the clear light of death, like for Ling Rinpoche, it lasted 13 days. So when did death occur? On the first day, on the last day. Yeah. And when do you go from dying to death? What is the moment that marks the transition from dying to death? In some of the philosophical texts, death is the having disintegrated of a sentient being who has died. Okay, so if death is the having disintegrated of a sentient being who has died, then wouldn't you think that the mind would have separated from the body by that point? If they have died, the mind is no longer connected to the body. Okay. Um, Nagarjuna said death is the having ceased of a sentient being. Yeah, because when we die from one life, the sentient being of that life does not go on to the next life. Remember, there's the specific eye and the general eye. Yeah, so the specific eye, that being, when we die, that human being has ceased. Okay. But when the consciousness is still in the mind, is still in the body, that human being hasn't ceased yet. That eye is still there. Consciousness needs to leave the body. But then, if that's death, then why do they say the clear light of death? Could it possibly be that one word has different meanings in different contexts? Could that be? No. Never. So I have a question for you, because last, last time people asked, well, if feeling, you know, has absorbed in the second stage, the aggregate of feeling stops then, then, you know, how can you have unpleasant feelings when, if karmic appearances apply, uh, arise in your mind after that? So I have a question for you. The very first step of the absorption is earth absorbing. And they say when earth absorbs, yeah, the body becomes more uh, rigid and inflexible and it can't move. So my question is, why does the sentient being keep breathing then? Because if they can't move, breath requires movement. Shouldn't they stop breathing at that first absorption, not at the fourth one? So how, how come you can keep breathing? And how come if hearing 
ends with the second absorption. We uh, call, you know, we chant and read prayers out loud uh, to, to that person, even after the breath has stopped. How can they possibly hear? Impossible. Hearing stopped. That moment when the water absorbed into the fire. I don't know when that moment is, but whenever it was, that same moment, the hearing stopped forever and ever. Now, tell me, what was the moment when the water absorbed into fire? When is that moment? And I remember when Geshe Jambatekchok was uh, doing an analysis, you know, of a moment. Yeah, because we talk about things happening in a moment. And it, you know, it means the amount of time it takes to do something. But sometimes it means one instant. Yeah. So he says, How, when, when is that moment? Okay. Because a moment has three parts. A beginning, a middle, and a last part. Okay. I initially thought it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Because that's how we usually say it, don't we? Something has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But Geshitha said, no, it has a last part. Because the end is after it's, the moment has ceased. Like death is after the consciousness has left the body. For some people... Maybe for other people, it's defined differently. Isn't that what we argue about in court? How to define different words? Yeah? I mean, that's what they're going to be arguing about with, uh, you know, the case of the police officers. Was that murder or was that not murder? They're arguing about if something fits a definition. Now, in law, you might have a certain definition, but I wonder if that definition includes absolutely everything and makes everything crystal clear. Okay, so just just something to ponder. Okay, now, one of our Singapore friends had some really, really good questions. She said, when we reach, when we meditate on death and we're doing the absorptions, she says, when I reach the clear light, I feel only blankness. How am I supposed to meditate then? Okay. Well, what they say, how you're supposed to meditate then, is at that time, you should remember the conclusion for when you meditated on emptiness doing analysis previously. Okay, so in another meditation session, you did analysis on emptiness, 
And then at that time in your tantra practice, or if you're just doing the plain death absorption visualization, you're supposed to remember that experience of emptiness. Okay. Now, I don't know how many of us actually have an experience of emptiness when we do the, the analysis. Yeah. And we may come up with some kind of feeling of there's nobody there. Yeah, and she said blankness, it might be that same thing, like, oh, there's nobody there, or there's nothing there, no thing there. Yeah. So they say, actually, just kind of imagine space that has no obstruction. Yeah, if you can't remember your experience of... Uh, of emptiness from having done an analysis at some point, then just think of space without obstruction because that's the analogy that's used for emptiness. But emptiness is not empty space without obstruction. That's just the analysis. So they say, yeah, yeah, it's the analogy. Thank you. And, uh, they also say that if you want to, you know, if nothing is coming to mind, at that point you can do one of the analysis uh, analyses and try and get a sense of emptiness during that time of the clear light, okay? Because actually when we're going through the visualization, it's, it's an imagination. It's not actually happening at that point. But the purpose of it is if we can refine that imagination, then when we are actually dying, you know, there's a chance of becoming more aware of the death process and uh, following it and perhaps even meditating on emptiness during that death process. Now there it says death process. So, but death is a thing. Dying is a process. I think that death is a process. Mm-hmm. Because look at the people that get stuck in the cold water for so many minutes. You know, under kids that get ice cold water and they should drown, mm-hmm. but they don't. Mm-hmm. And their whole body processes are slowed down, so they actually, the death process is dra- drug out. Or mm-hmm. people, there's just so many situations that you can read about where Think you might say the person's dead, but their fingernails are still growing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these things, there's a process, all these different parts of the being, and I would say the mind too, are changing. And it's a process. So just think of it as a moment. If your moment is stretched out, like Kizer Techchoke says, okay, but if your moment is like an instance, then mm-hmm. that doesn't really work for me because all these things are happening. Yeah. And they're all coming to a conclusion at different yeah. so times. Can you ever some are really, probably reversible. Yeah. So can you ever really find, you know, I mean, can you isolate one moment that is the moment of death? It's difficult, isn't it? the law. You just make a definition. Yeah. <laughs> like what, if somebody says, when were you born? Okay. So what is birth? Is birth 
when you were conceived in the womb? Or is birth when you came out of your mother? Now, if your mother had a natural birth, was birth when you when she dilated? Was birth when you crowned? Was birth when you were halfway out? What about you were all the way out except for one foot? Had birth occurred or not? Okay, so when actually is the moment of birth? Okay, and when actually does a breath occur? When does a thought occur? Okay, so the thing is we use words and we forget that a word is a designation and we think it is something that you that is inherently existent that we can draw a square around or a circle around and that is it. Yeah. For example, when you say, I'm happy. What is happiness? How do you know you're happy? Yeah, how would you describe happiness? Or what would you point to in your body or mind and say that is the experience of happiness? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. How do you, you know, how do you know when you're happy? How do you know when you're sad? How do you know when you're tired? Yeah. Like I know I'm tired because I get a certain sensation in my eyelids. That's what tired means. That sensation in the eyelids. I can't tell you when it starts. And I can't tell you when it ends. But that's tired. How can a sensation in my eyelids be the meaning of tired? Yeah, I'm grouchy because I'm tired. I'm grouchy because I have that sensation in my eyelids? How can a sensation in my eyelids make me put me in a bad mood? So it's very interesting to explore these things, yeah, and try and, and see how words are only approximations. They are not the object at all. And they aren't even very good approximations. Yeah. When does a baby stop being a baby and start being a toddler when they start walking when is the moment that they start walking when does when does that happen okay anyway think about it then the other question from singapore is after death we have another rebirth and uh, our, the uh, seeds of our karma come with us. 
So doesn't that mean that there is a real self or a real I or some kind of permanent or stable person that carries the karmic seeds? Because how else can they get from one life to the next? It's a good question, isn't it? And Buddhist philosophers have been debating this question since the time of the Buddha. And they've come up with many different ideas on how to answer it. And it's a really crucial question. I think it was so cool that she, you know, this person I don't think has studied like all the philosophy, but just through her own meditation doing that, she came up with this question, which is the question all the philosophers ask. Yeah, what carries the karma from one life to the next life? Because the person dies, but the karma goes on. So how does the karma get from here to there? Okay. So uh, there's a variety of different theories about it. Okay. Um, some of the Vibhisikas say that there's uh, something that's like an IOU, you know, that that's what, kar- they don't assert karmic seeds. They just say there's something that's like an IOU that goes with. But still, how does that IOU go from one life to the next? Okay. Chitamajans, you know, they copped out. They said there's a foundational consciousness. You know, there's a truly existent foundational consciousness that is the person, but it's not a soul. Not a soul. But it sure sounds like one, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's not a soul. And some people, when they talk about the Tathagatagarbha, you know, the Buddha nature, sometimes that sounds like a soul too. But all Buddhist traditions, you know, negate the idea of a soul. There may be some some type of Vibhasaka, some mitas or something that talk about a permanent person, but... Nobody pays attention to them nowadays. <laughs> yeah. So we like to hear the, the mind stream carries the karma. And we have this idea of there's a mind stream. Yeah. One mind stream. And it's there. And it just goes. And somewhere in here we say death happens. We're not sure. And then something happens over here and it ripens. Yeah. Is it, isn't that how we picture it happening? Yeah? Yeah. That's how we picture it happening. That's grasping a true existence. Yeah. But then we say, but the texts say that the consciousness goes from one life to the next. 
that there's a continuity of consciousness. Because if there weren't a continuity of consciousness, then for sure the karmic seeds could never go from one life to the other because the consciousness would cease once and for all at the death of one, of one life, whenever that death was, but before the birth of the other life, whenever that birth was. Yeah. So if the consciousness ceased, then there's no way to carry the karma. But if the consciousness is just this mind stream, you know, here it is, this mind stream, it's, you know, kind of stable, isn't it? And it's mine. It's my mind stream. So I have a soul after all, right? We just call it by a different name and we say it's the mind stream. Yeah? What do you think Nagarjuna is going to say to that? You idiot! (laughs) You haven't read my book! It's interesting. When we think of the Mississippi River, okay, we all know where the Mississippi River is. You know, it starts upstream where? Kind of Minnesota someplace? Yeah? And then it goes down and it goes into the Gulf of Mexico in Louisiana, right? So there's the Mississippi River. It's one river, isn't it? One river. Mississippi River. There it is. It started up here, and this Mississippi... Oh, it goes this way. (laughs) (laughs) And it flows along, and then it goes into the Gulf of Mexico and gets even more polluted than it was when it was a river. So we think of it as an unchanging river, don't we? Does that river change? Is the river the same at its origin as at its end? Then why do we call it by one name if it's two different things? Yeah, at the source, it's coming out of the ground somewhere, probably some little trickles. And it's small, and that water is probably pure. Yeah. By the time it winds up at the Gulf of Mexico, it's big and it's yeah, dirty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who needs firecrackers when you can burn the Mississippi River? Huh? It's completely different at the headwaters and at the end. So why do we give it one name if it's two different things? If somebody showed you a picture of the headwaters and a picture of the end when it flows into the Gulf of Mexico and said, are these the same thing? What would you say? No. But they're both the Mississippi River. And what about all the places in between those two places? 
they don't look like the headwaters and they don't look like the muddy Mississippi at the end, but they're also called the Mississippi. And we say the Mississippi carries leaves. If you drop a leaf in at the top, it might carry that leaf all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. But is it one river or is it many rivers? And what exactly is the Mississippi? Is it the banks? Is it water? Is it the pollution? Is it the bottom of the river? What actually is the Mississippi River? Okay, when you analyze and try and find out exactly what something is, it becomes very ambiguous, doesn't it? Yeah, we can't find something that it is it. And yet somehow, if you drop that leaf in upstream, it will wind up downstream unless, you know, a fish ate it in the middle or it got caught in a net or something like that. Okay. So it's kind of the same thing with karma. There's this continuity of consciousness. But actually, the consciousness aggregate of one life ends and then the consciousness aggregate of a new life arises. But we say that the, con- that the, the mind stream continues. So is the mind stream the, first, the previous life, the next life, the, the bardo being? Yeah, what is it? And so uh, with the prasangikas, you can't find something that's the mind stream. You can't find something that you can isolate and say is the mental consciousness. And that drives us crazy because we want to know what carries the karma. And then we hear the mere I carries the karma. Finally, now I know what carries the karma, the mere I. Oh, my anxiety has disappeared. I now know the right answer. The mere I carries the karma. I can relax now. I know the answer. Until somebody asks you, What is the mere I? Huh? What is the mere I? Something that's merely designated upon the independence upon the collection of the aggregates. Which aggregates? What is its basis of designation? And what exactly is it? What is this mere I? It is what is merely designated. What do you mean merely designated? Yeah, Mickey Mouse 
is more real than something that's mis- merely designated. You know, I know who Mickey Mouse is, and I know who Cinderella is, but merely designated I? What in the world is that? Isn't that interesting? You know, how we, we, we feel much more comfortable talking about Cinderella and Mickey Mouse because they're real. <laughs> and the mere eye drives us batty. Now we have some other questions. So the first half of the page is about the time of death. No, actually about two two thirds of the page is is about the meaning of death. So I'll leave it here, you can read it. Then another question is, to the person who is dying, various appearances, pleasant and unpleasant, pleasant, dawn to the mind. So at what point in the dissolution process do these appearances arise? Okay. Didn't we talk about this last week? Yeah, I thought we did. What did I say? The first four stages of dissolution, these appearances occur. Yeah. Yeah. Because by the end of the fourth stage, when consciousness dissolves, the gross consciousness and the 80 conceptions have uh, ceased. Yeah? So they say that the appearances don't arise then and you only you know, have the white, the, the red, and then the black appearance. Okay. Now, does that mean for everybody it is exactly the same? Yeah, like, hurry up, have that karmic appearance, because my fourth stage is absorbing. (laughs) And, uh uh-oh, I'm in the stage of the white appearance, and I'm seeing something else besides white. That can't be. I'm doing it wrong. I can't even die right. There's a whole way to die. And it's all planned out, and I can't even follow the the right order in the death process. Okay. Then another question. Fire element dissolves into wind element. The aggregate of discrimination dissolves. So how is it that the internal signs from here on can be recognized since discrimination is ceasing or has ceased? Okay. What level of discrimination are you talking about? And discriminating what? Yeah. And can you give an exact point where the aggregate of discrimination has absorbed? It's that exact point where the fire element dissolves into the wind element. And so at that point, your body's supposed to be cold. So that means one moment it's hot, next moment it's cold. And you can find that 
fighting line. <laughs> okay, shall we go on? So the first one, are the teachings on the stages of death primarily taught as a literal account of this is what happens in this order, or is it primarily taught as a meditation? Contemplate dissolution in this order to familiarize and be able to recognize them in whatever order both. they actually unfold. I think both. But, uh, you know, it's going. things are going to differ from person to person and from death to death because this is just a general outline, you know, and so many other causes and conditions are at work here. Yeah, so they teach it as a meditation, but it's we meditate on it because they say that then if we're aware at the time of death, we can follow that process and meditate on emptiness. Okay. And then the second question is, could the karma just be carried in emptiness until causes and conditions present for it to form into a new aggregate? Set of well, it can't actually be carried into emptiness because emptiness is, is permanent. Okay? So it's it has to be something. And also because the table is empty. So would it carry on in the table's emptiness? No, in the mind stream's emptiness. Then you have to have the mind stream. Okay? What in the world is the mind stream? And which mind stream carries it at which moment? And what color is the mind stream and how wide is it? <laughs> yeah? We have an image in our mind of the mind stream. Isn't that crazy? It's not even something physical. Okay, so I think we're on page 222 at the top. Okay, so here His Holiness is going to uh, start talking about, you know, how to help people when they're dying and, uh, and so on, things like that. And Venerable Sanke Kadra led a retreat on that, what, a month or two ago? So um, people can also go online and listen to her talks. <coughs> So the best way to help friends and family prepare for death is to encourage them while they are alive to abandon non-virtue and engage in purification to avoid unfortunate rebirths and to create virtue to ensure that they have causes for a good rebirth. That's really a real good way to benefit other people, not just take their side when they're in a fight, yeah, not just uh, say sweet words to them when they're down, but teach them how to abandon virtue and create virtue. Because that gives them a lot of power. But abandon non-virtue and create virtue. What did I say? Abandon virtue. Oh, I'm glad somebody's listening. <laughs> so abandon non-virtue and create virtue. Okay. So... Encourage them to be generous and kind to others and to forgive others and not hold grudges. Avoid involving them in divisive speech, harsh speech, or idle talk. 
In this way, they will create merit and will have no regrets when they die. Yeah, so to really take care, you know, encourage our friends and relatives to be generous. Encourage them to practice fortitude and to forgive other people. Yeah, because so often some incident happens. It can be a big one. It can be a small one. And people just, you know, they get stuck. And this person treated me in this way, and I can't endure it, and I don't want to be around them anymore. I am not speaking to them anymore. You know, they need to crawl on the ground and apologize to me. Yeah, people get very stuck in that. Yeah, if we encourage somebody to be angry like that, and to completely ostracize somebody else, does that help that person? Yeah. So many people at retreats, yeah, the, the new word, well, it's not a new word, but toxic is the word that's used a lot now. Okay, my family is toxic, so I have to cut relations with my family altogether because it's toxic. Yeah, I've heard that so many times, or my parent is toxic, or, you know, somebody else is toxic, and I just have to completely cut relationships with them because they're toxic to me. Okay? So what the person is, is really saying, you know, when they're saying that person is toxic, what they're really saying is, I feel hurt and angry. But they can't say, I feel hurt and angry. They have to put it on the other person. If we go along with them and we say, you're right, that person is toxic. Yeah. Don't ever speak to them as long as you live. Yeah. Is that helping that person? that helping that person, you know? On the other hand, do we say, oh, just practice compassion and forgive them and continue seeing them? Do we say that? That may not be so skillful either, especially if somebody's being physically threatened or mentally manipulated. So I think, you know, rather than reinforce some people, you know, because when somebody says they're toxic and I have to cut them out of my life, that's a mind that we, we keep noticing, that mind that doesn't like ambiguity, that mind that wants one right answer that we never have to question that we never have to change. Yeah. And I think in a case like that, yes, it could be. Your family dynamics may be really disturbing and unhealthy. And so for a while, you may need to take some space. Not because they're toxic, but because you need to figure out why 
how how you get hooked by that dynamic. Yeah. We need to figure out how we get hooked by the dynam- dynamic. Because once we can figure that out, then being around that person is not going to set us off like it used to. Because we're not going to be biting the hook. Yeah. So wouldn't it be nicer in the long term if somebody came to us and said, you know, I just have to never speak to that person again and as long as I live, to say instead, maybe take a break. Yeah. See if, see if you can get yourself together and understand yourself. And just in your mind, leave the door open because you will change and that person may change. Yeah. And if it happens that you both change, that would be a lot nicer than dying with hatred for them, wouldn't it be? Hmm? Okay. So somehow, you know, to really encourage friends and relatives to, uh, yeah, to not make things so solid. Hmm? Yeah, I come from a family where people hold grudges from one generation to the next generation. I think I've told you some of that, but if I haven't, then come to the retreat on on uh, forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. But we can see it, you know. Can you see it in yourself? There's some people you just don't want to go near. As if they are permanent, fixed, they will never be anything but that. Yeah. Whatever they said to you in the past or whatever they did to you in the past is concrete so that next time you see them, they're going to do the exact same thing. So don't even go see them. Huh? Really? There's going to be a total repeat of what happened before? You know? That's really, we're grasping onto permanence there. It's very painful. Okay, so don't involve them in divisive speech, harsh speech, idle talk, coveting, you know, all this kind of stuff. The most prominent thought while we are actively dying, yet still conscious, stimulates the ripening of a karmic seed that will project us into a specific rebirth. Okay, actively dying, yet still conscious. If we die with strong attachment for our loved ones, possessions, or reputation, or with great anger towards our enemies, seeds of destructive karma will ripen. If our mind is virtuous, owing to having trust in the three jewels, cultivating compassion for sentient beings, or contemplating the nature of reality, Constructive karma, the karmic seeds are activated and we will take a fortunate rebirth. 
Once the dying person has passed through the first four stages of the death process, the mind is in a neutral state and the karma projecting the next life is already beginning to ripen. So that's when the link of renewed existence is going. Craving and uh, clinging and craving, no, craving and clinging before that, and then renewed existence is starting to get involved then. Okay. Vasubandhu said that consciousness can be virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral at the moment of death. What's the moment of death? Anyway, whatever it is at that moment, depending, yeah, the moment of death, maybe, yeah, I don't know what he means by moment of death, depending on the person's thought at that time, his hat, so he's saying the, the consciousness can be virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral at the time of death. His half-brother, Asanga, explained that whereas the coarser states of mind can be virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral, the subtle consciousness present at the time of death is neutral. Okay? So the ability to be virtuous or non-virtuous non has already gone. You know? If you put that in the tantric perspective, probably because... Uh, all the conceptual consciousnesses are gone. Yeah. In tantric texts, the Buddha explains that whereas the coarse consciousness can be virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral, the subtlest consciousness can never be non-virtuous. This is because the 80 conceptual thoughts, most of which are non-virtuous, function only in coarse states of mind, which cease before the subtlest mind arises at the actual moment of death. Through profound yogic methods, the subtlest consciousness, also called the fundamental innate mind of clear light, which is ordinarily neutral, can be transformed into a virtuous state if you are really aware and a very good meditator with deep concentration and realization. The best procedure to follow at the time of death depends on the person. In general, as someone approaches death, avoid disturbing her mind with unnecessary emotional outbursts, outpourings. Oh, how can you leave? I love you so much. Or, oh, I've loved you for a long time and I've been so mean to you. Please forgive me. Okay, so avoid that kind of stuff while somebody's dying. Also avoid spiritual ideas that will confuse her. Yeah? So somebody believes in one religion and you try and convert them as they're dying. Yeah, that is horrible to do. And I told you the story of when that happened to one of my students. Really horrible. Okay, so don't do that. And don't disturb them with idle talk. Yeah. Oh, you're dying now, but the pink sheets on your bed are such a pretty color pink, and you've always liked pink. Okay. So don't do that. 
help her to recall something virtuous. The three jewels, compassion, generosity, the kind deeds they've done, yeah, the times when they have practiced fortitude and haven't held a grudge and have been kind to somebody who has harmed them. Okay, so we help them to recall something virtuous with which uh, they're already familiar. Okay. Encourage her to rejoice in her own and others' virtues. Yeah, so that's important, you know. You lived a good life. You know, think of the people that you helped. Think of the people that you reached out to. Yeah. Even if you couldn't help them directly, think of the people who you wished well and what a kind mind you had. Okay, remind them of that. Encourage uh, her to rejoice in her own and others' virtues. If she has no religion, gently speak to her about forgiveness, love, compassion, and hope, qualities that everybody appreciates and that will make her mind virtuous. Yeah, so you can speak about forgiveness at that late time, but actually it's better before somebody is really actively dying you know, if they have a terminal illness and, you know, some kind of diagnosis, uh, help them at that point to begin the process of apologizing to the people they need to apologize to and forgiving the people they need to forgive. Don't wait until the last moment. Yeah, because they won't be thinking clearly and just even thinking of that person who they haven't forgiven could make uh, negative feelings arise. So much better earlier on, you know, kind of uh, talk to them about just, you know, just let go. Yeah. Um, I was at, I was leading a retreat one time in North Carolina. And a woman, an older woman came to see me. And um, she was, Telling me, let me remember exactly how the story goes. Yeah, she got some kind of venereal disease. Uh, she'd been married many, many years, you know, a long time to the same man. And she got some VD. And then she found out that her husband had actually been unfaithful and was sleeping with somebody else. And they were both old, you know, at that time when she found that out. And she said, I forgave him because I don't want him to die with my anger on his head. Huh? And I don't want to die with my anger on my head either. But I thought, you know, what a compassionate intention that was, you know. Yes, what he did was wrong, but I don't want him to die with my anger interfering with his life or with his death. Yeah, so she said, I just forgave him. Yeah. So that's the thing to encourage people to do. No matter what religion a dying person follows, 
encourage her to do the practices uh, with which she is familiar. Encourage a Christian to forgive others, develop a kind heart, pray to God, and think of Jesus's benevolent qualities. Speak to a Jew, Hindu, or Muslim according to the beliefs and concepts of his religion. These are more familiar and comforting to the dying person and will facilitate his leaving this life peacefully. Never try to convert another person on his deathbed. That just creates confusion. That is not kindness. That is not compassion. Some people have heard of the Tibetan book of the death, dead, or Bardo Todo, uh, Chenmo, which describes a specific meditation done in the Nyingma tradition for those who have received empowerment into that practice and practiced it while alive. It is not the case that the visions of peaceful and wrathful deities and mandalas described in this text occur to everyone at the time of death or in the intermediate state. So some people in the West, because this was a book that was translated very, very early on, and it seems really mystical and magical, you know, because somebody's dying and in the first stage of death you get this fierce deity, you know, with so many arms and legs and wings and they're trying to show you this and that and then something else happens and another kind of grotesque deity. And I mean, it seems, yeah, mystical and magical and far out. And so many people, you know, a few decades ago, and I think even now, uh, they said, oh, when somebody's dying, we read this book to them, you know? Now, can you imagine you're not a Buddhist, okay? You're trying to die and somebody's telling you, yeah, be aware when you get the blue light sign because you'll see this kind of deity trying to get you to do this and that. I mean, somebody's going to freak out. Yeah. And anyway, it's not the case that everybody has these same visions. Yeah. So the, the text, the Bardo Todo, was written for people who took an initiation, did a specific practice, and needed to be reminded of that practice as they were dying. Okay. Um, practitioners familiar with the practice described in the Tibetan Book of the Dead may have those appearances after death and use them in meditation. Okay, that's if they're familiar with meditation while alive. Hearing this text could possibly confuse a dying person who is unfamiliar with that practice. Therefore, I recommend encouraging dying people to think of the religious figures and the qualities of the holy beings that inspire them personally and to develop a kind heart towards all sentient beings. You can't go wrong with that. No matter what religion somebody is, no matter whether they're, they're not a believer in any religion, talking to them about kindness, compassion, you know, that you can never go wrong with that. 
because that definitely relaxes their mind. It puts their mind in a virtuous state. It is not appropriate to introduce a complex meditation with unfamiliar and often fierce-looking figures to a dying person. Yeah. Buddhists can do a variety of practices while they're dying, depending on the, their level of practice. Remind a dying Dharma friend of a practice she is trained in and guide her through it if she wishes. Okay, so somebody may say, you know, uh, I, I feel a real connection with Chenrezi, and so when I die, please remind me of Chenrezi, please remind me of the visualization of Chenrezi, tell me to, you know, request Chenrezi to, uh, uh, you know, to help me take a good rebirth, uh, to help me have compassion, yeah. So you remind a person of, of what they've practiced, the virtuous thoughts that they've generated, things like that. Yeah. And they always say, some people remind them of their teacher. If somebody's a tantra practitioner, remind them of their lama. Yeah. And to make requests to their lama at the time that they die. Okay. When it is our turn to die, we should likewise focus on a familiar practice. That's not the time to start doing a practice that you've never done. Yeah, it's just because you've heard it's a high practice. No, it's the time whatever you've practiced and you're familiar with that your mind can easily be uh, transformed into virtue, then do that practice. Okay, since our mental power and alertness decrease at the time of death and while we're dying, forcing ourselves or others to do a new practice at that time will be confusing. Beneficial practices for Buddhists to do while dying include taking refuge in the Three Jewels, which enables our mind to relax and rest in a virtuous state which is conducive for the ripening of constructive karma, which in turn will propel our mind stream to take a good rebirth. So they say if you take refuge while you're dying, then there's no way negative karma can ripen, you know, and throw you into an, uh, a bad rebirth. So bad line, bottom line, take refuge. Okay. Now, what does it mean to take refuge? Does it mean just, you know, you're lying there, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge. Oh, I forgot the guru. I take refuge in the guru too. I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge. Yeah. It, no, it doesn't mean saying that. It means in your heart, you know, connecting with them and knowing that what they have taught you and those teachings themselves are the thing that are, that's what's going to protect you. And if you can realize those teachings, those realizations are the actual protection from dukkha. Okay? So it's a very strong feeling of connection and faith there that leads us to practice the teachings that we've heard. Okay? So faith isn't just I feel faith, I feel faith. It, it moves us 
to do something. Yeah. And then that makes the good karma ripen and, and so on. Developing a kind heart, generating bodhicitta, and doing the taking and giving meditation at the time of death. Also place our minds, our mind in a positive and fearless state. Okay, that should be place instead of places. Okay, bottom of page 223. Reflecting on emptiness calms grasping and fear, enabling us to peacefully let go of this life. So remind people, you know, this is only an appearance. There's nothing really there, you know. There's no person who is you who is dying. So don't be worried about disappearing. Yeah. There's no concrete person getting reborn. So don't worry about a lower rebirth. Focus on emptiness. Yeah. Do you remember when Achi was dying? And this is what we were telling him. We could see at certain points, Achi was our cat, you know, that he was having kind of visions. And we would just tell him that, and then he would kind of settle down and for a while and then, you know, have something else. We may also think of the Buddha or our meditational deity and imagine light and nectar flowing from the Buddha into us, purifying our destructive karma and inspiring our mind with realizations. So that too is a wonderful practice to do while somebody's dying. You know, especially if somebody is, they're nervous, they're restless, you know, to imagine the Buddha or imagine a ball of light that is compassion and light flowing and filling your body and mind and with compassion making your mind peaceful. Um, then you say some mantra and that, you know, that can really help somebody settle. Advanced practitioners who have the proper empowerment and have practiced Tantra during their lifetimes should reaffirm the Bodhisattva and Tantric ethical codes and then do deity yoga, meditate, the with, meditate with the wisdom of inseparable bliss and emptiness, or meditate to take death, bardo, and rebirth into the path to the three Buddha bodies, the truth body, resource, uh, resource um, enjoyment body, and emanation body. We should dedicate all the merit we have created during our life for the awakening of ourselves and all sentient beings. We should pray to be born in a body and environment where we can meet and properly rely on fully qualified fundamental vehicle, Mahayana and Vajrayana spiritual mentors. Learn under their guidance and practice without obstacles. So generating those kind of aspirations, you know, when we're actively dying is really important. In short, we must do what is suitable to our level of mind and to the circumstances we are in. You know, if you're in a car accident, you don't have time to think about a lot of things. Okay? If you're dying of cancer, maybe you have more time to think about those things. Yeah. 
But we never know, because with some people, the death absorptions go very quickly, and with some people, they go very slowly, over a period of days even. Whatever we do, we should be content and focus on the practice as best as we can without having doubts that perhaps we should be doing another more effective practice. Okay, so here I am, I'm dying. What practice do I do? Do I take refuge? Do I generate bodhicitta? Do I meditate on emptiness? Maybe I'm supposed to make requests to my guru. Maybe I'm supposed to visualize the deity. Maybe I'm supposed to pray to be born in Amitabha's pure land. What in the world am I supposed to do? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll visualize the Buddha and light from the Buddha coming into me. Okay, I did that for one minute. But maybe that's not what I should be doing, you know? I should be meditating on emptiness. And this thing, you see, I really, I can't even die right, you know? I mean, everything. I'm so confused at the time of death, just like I was confused at the time of, all during my life. And I don't know what to practice, and I can't die right. And my mind is anxious, and my mind is turbulent. And now I'm going to have a, a lower rebirth. And I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to be tossing and turning on my deathbed. And what's everybody going to think about me then? Because I'm supposed to be a good Buddhist practitioner so, practitioner, so I'm supposed to be dying very peacefully. But instead, I'm freaking out because I don't know what to practice. Sound familiar? I find myself just wandering around in the hall saying, you know, <laughs> this is not serving you, Sam okay? Mm-hmm. You know, you have practices. You love doing them. Still, don't wandering away to think that you should be doing something else, and to be to really understand that you're creating the causes to have your death experience right now. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole thing about familiarization is just hitting me harder this year than I remember. You know, and it's yeah. it's helping to track myself better. But that's a bad habit. It's just you know, I should be doing. Just rolling yeah. through the book. Just yeah. yeah. Whatever we're doing, it's not good enough. Okay? So they often say, you know, we're studying, and we think, oh, I'm just studying. I'm not doing any good for society. I should be doing some volunteer work. So we stop our study program. We go do volunteer work. Then we're doing volunteer work. Why am I doing volunteer work? My mind's so crazy. I need to meditate and calm my mind. So we start the volunteer work. Then we sit down to meditate. Then we're meditating. Oh, I'm so distracted while I'm meditating, and I don't know how to meditate. I should be studying. So we stop meditating. We go back to studying. You know? We can't, we, you know, we can't just stick with something and trust ourselves and you know, accomplish something. There's always this doubt of I should be doing something different. I should be doing something else. I should have accomplished that. Yeah. I'm dying, and I've only read 35 pages of Volume 7, even though I've already read it a few times before, but I have to finish it before I die. So, Lord of Death, you better go away for a while because I've got to read Volume 7. But if I read volume seven, yeah, I'm not. I, I, volume seven doesn't have all the meditations on how to refute the 
truly exist in I. So I better read volume eight instead because that has all the meditations to do that. <laughs> yeah. We're crazy. In the Sutta on Reappearance by Aspiration, so this is a Pali Sutta in the Manjumunikaya. The Buddha offers advice on how to direct the mind towards the type of rebirth we seek. Okay, so he begins. And mind you, this is a Pali Sutta. Listen to what the Buddha says. Monastics, I shall teach you reappearance in accordance with your aspiration. A monastic possesses faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. And he thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. Nobles there means aryas. Okay, so he has that aspiration, you know, on the dissolution of the body after death, you know, may I reappear in the company of well-grounded aryas. He fixes his mind on that, establishes it, develops it. These aspirations and this abiding of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. That sounds an awful lot like wanting to be born in a pure land to me. Yeah? Fixating on the thought. Yeah? After death, might I reappear in the company of Arya beings? Yeah? Why do I want to appear in the company of them? So that they can teach me, so that they will inspire me. Yeah, where can I find so many Aryas? Yeah, Sukhavati. Yeah, so you fix your mind on that. And then you get reborn there. I found that fascinating to read that, yeah. But, they also say, if when you die, you're really cold and your mind fixates, I want something warm, I want something warm, I want something warm, you might wind up being born in the hot hells. So be careful what you aspire for. So this is an example. This is how it's explained. This is an example for someone who wishes to be born in an upper socioeconomic class as a human being. The Buddha said the same for those who want to be reborn as various gods in the desire realm. Okay, but I think he's talking about rebirth and psychology here. In all these cases, to intentionally direct our mind towards a specific rebirth, it is necessary to cultivate five qualities. Are these the same five that we heard in a previous quote? They're not the five powers. Faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. Where did we come across that? Remember yeah, we were talking about that? Okay. Maybe we need to... Uh, do a, a search and find in, in the 
book. Faith is confidence in the three jewels and the law of karma and their result. Virtue is the collection of merit created by keeping precepts, making offerings, sharing our wealth, cultivating fortitude, and so on. Learning is gained by listening to teachings, reading Dharma books, reflecting on their meaning, and discussing the Dharma with others. Generosity is based on lack of attachment to material goods and distancing ourselves from the eight worldly concerns. Wisdom is the wisdom understanding karma and its effects and the emptiness of inherent existence. Having cultivated these qualities and become familiar with them while alive, at the time of death, we generate a strong aspiration for a particular type of rebirth. So that's during the dying process, yeah. So here you can see at the time of death doesn't mean that actual moment. It means the dying process, yeah. To be reborn in any of the four uh, formless absorptions, we must attain that specific level of dhyana or meditative absorption as a human being. If we wish to be born in one of the pure abodes where non-returners dwell, we must develop, that's uh, for uh, fundamental vehicle practitioners, we must develop the unity of serenity and insight on selflessness and attain the fruit of a non-returner before death. If we complete the path to our hardship, we will attain the elimination of all pollutants at the time of death. Those wishing to be reborn in the pure land of Amitabha or another Buddha will generate that aspiration at the time of death, thus directing their minds to that rebirth. Lower level bodhisattvas will direct their aspirations towards whatever rebirth seems most conducive, conducive for accomplishing the bodhisattva path, while Arya bodhisattvas will be able to voluntarily choose their reappearance for the benefit of sentient beings. Having these uh, precious instructions, we should do our best to implement them now in order to prepare for death. Since death is certain, but it's time uncertain, let's be prepared. During the death process and for seven weeks afterwards, meditations and prayers done for the deceased can positively influence their consciousness so that the virtuous karma the person has previously created will ripen. This is most effective when the people have a good karmic connection. For example, spiritual mentor and disciple, parent and child, relevance, relatives or friends. Okay, so it's best if uh, the person who makes these prayers and donations and creates the merit is somebody who has a karmic connection with that person. It's not essential, but it's very good. Yeah. When I went to ask Enlan Rinpa once to make prayers for my grandma after she died, he told me, you're the one with the karmic, karmic connection. You make prayers for her. It is also helpful to donate the person's belongings to his or her spiritual mentors charities, monasteries, or dharma centers, 
and dedicate the merit of this generosity for the person to take a fortunate rebirth with all conducive circumstances to practice the Dharma. So you had a question? On page two, um, I'm on a different um, page number, but there was another quote um, that was uh, listed these five um, mm. virtues from uh, another sutra that said, don't be afraid, Maham uh, Nama. Um, your death will not be a bad one. Your demise will not be a bad one. When a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, ethical conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom, right yeah, right Right here, his mind, which has been fortified over a long time by faith, ethical con conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom, that goes upward, goes to distinction. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the only difference is um, hmm? ethical conduct instead of virtue. Okay, They're, they mean the same thing, yeah. So that's from the, the uh, connected discourses, and the one we just read was from the, the uh, middle-length discourses. Yeah, both in the, in the Pali canon. Okay, yeah. Um, so this person asks, what is actually practicing when the aggregates are dissolved into white, red, darkness, and clear light stages if the consciousness has dissolved? Is it too subtle, subtle to describe? Um, it, the subtle con the gross consciousness is dissolved. The, co the subtle consciousness is there. If you have practiced recognizing the stages of death while you're alive and meditated on that, then while you're dying, they say that you can recognize it and you think of it as an appearance that is empty. Yeah. But if you haven't... Uh, practiced it while you're alive, chances are you'll miss it when, de when dying too. Yes. Okay. <laughs>